Welcome back, folks. First off, I'm traveling this week. So if my voice is less grating than usual, that's because I'm not using my normal equipment. Some great man once said that, when listening to certain voices, that which deadens the senses comforts the soul. Well, folks, my first interview has come out. As mentioned before, I did this interview with the almost 30-minute quiz show. I don't want to make you actually listen to their whole episode, because you might enjoy it and never come back here. So, they've allowed me to reproduce it in full right here. So here goes. And welcome back. Question number one was, which presidential candidate has the greatest wealth, Bloomberg or Donald Trump? David, the answer is? I believe it's Bloomberg. It is Bloomberg. But he, does he talk about it as much as Donald Trump does? Um, possibly. Well, I mean, he has his name on everything. So when you have a TV channel, you yes, have your name you on it. I, I suppose that, that's you talking about it, but in a different way. Anyway, that was a very, very brief discussion of the question because... Because on a almost 30-minute quiz exclusive, and for the first time ever, we're doing a live interview with a US presidential candidate. Delighted that he's actually in the room with us, and his name is Candidate Everyone. Yes. It's a very serious name. Obviously not a pseudonym. It's my birth name. Um, my parents had particular aspirations for me. Was the name none of the above taken? Because just, just tell us how people vote in America. It's, it's well, not actually, like you, you it's have to write it in my name. But eventually, if this actually becomes relevant to anybody, uh, then they might be able to work out what my real name is. But for now, I'm going with Candidate Everyone because it's a lot more fun. See, I would have gone with none of the above or <laughs> I don't want to choose any of these because you're going to get half a dozen votes. That's essentially what it is. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about the process of running to be president. Well, I mean, the normal process of running to be president is you raise a lot of money. And when you raise a lot of money, you have to register with the Federal Election Commission, and then you can seek to be on ballots in different states and go through this whole process of being selected as one of the candidates for one of the parties. There are a couple major parties, some minor parties no one cares about. Uh, and then there's the other process. You can just be written in for president. Uh, and the rule is if you're going to run for president in that situation and, and not report yourself and file proper filing to the Federal Election Commission, you're just not allowed to spend over $5,000. So my goal is to campaign for less than $5,000, and so far, I've spent fourteen. $14? Yes. And how's the fundraising going? It's, 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 it's uh, running very, very well. My you're wife you're is, not going to hit the $5,000 target. So my I'm wife saying. has approved $14 a month, uh, and we'll see. Uh, maybe I can get a boost from the family budget uh, if it goes particularly well. Why did you decide to run? At the end of the day... I'm assuming, with respect, you're not going to be the next president of the United States. Historically, it's come from the well, Democrats. Well, it's on the show, it could go viral. Absolutely. So you never know. But, but we're talking Democrats, Republicans. Why? Why try to challenge that aristocracy of American politics? Do you want a serious answer? No. <laughs> Great. So basically, if you look at the field today, there's a tremendous opportunity. Because who would you want to vote for? You can look at it in British politics. You've got either a clown or a communist. So I can be a communist clown and I can take the whole field. So is that how you would describe yourself, a communist? I, I'm not actually a communist, but I am a clown. Uh, and so I got half the puzzle covered. Uh, my policies are unique and different from anybody else's out there, which is part of the reason I think there's a huge vacuum. You've got this huge divide between left and right, and then you have wishy-washy people in the middle who stand for nothing. Uh, and I've decided to take another track, and I think it'd be kind of fun to do. So if you're not left and not right and not in the middle... Where are you? I'm on my own tangent. It's a whole lot of fun. Give us a couple of your key policies that, that 
are going to get people out there voting for candidate everyone. Okay, so one policy that uh, bothers everybody around the world in different forms is healthcare. You either have the U.S. system, which is obnoxiously expensive and people can't afford it, uh, and you end up with tremendous problems of continual cost rises. And, and or it's part of the U.K. election at the moment is U.S. healthcare and the worry that the U.K. may become like that. In uh, the U.K. has its own issues. You have problems with lack of availability. Uh, you certainly have problems. I lived in Australia. I lived in London. I've lived in other places as well. Uh, and you have a lack of availability, but also the U.S. drives global innovation in healthcare because they pay so much for new things. And if you stop that, then all of a sudden, pretend we stopped it 50 years ago, we'd be stuck with 1970s healthcare. And we've gained a lot and learned a lot in that time. And so my policy on healthcare is that the median cost of treating a disease, we'd be able to identify the disease and bring in compounding factors with a model, the everybody who got diagnosed with that disease would get that amount of budget to spend on their own health care from the government, single payer. If they spend more, it comes out of their own pockets, and if they spend less, they can keep up to 5% of the savings. And because of that, they'll be shopping around and using market forces to drive down the cost of health care improve outcomes, and also have it be universally available. And so that kind of model, I think, is the kind of thing that is neither left nor right nor in the middle, but can end up having tremendous benefits. And that's really the reason that I'm running. The two things that people universally vote on are health and wealth. How are you going to make people feel wealthy? Just having money doesn't make you feel wealthy. What makes you feel wealthy is creating things and earning money and having the fulfillment of that activity. Uh, and so I have a very complex tax policy that you don't want to hear about because it'll make everyone go to sleep. But nonetheless, the idea is is that we, we supplement people earning income uh, instead of simply uh, giving a handout. And by virtue of doing that, we can enable people to engage in the fulfilling process of earning money. Uh, and the idea is not to tax the creation of money and the earning of money, but to tax consumption that is not connected uh, either to charity or to creating more wealth. So, I mean, there's an American candidate talking about giving everybody a thousand, is it a thousand dollars a month? Um, Yang? I could certainly imagine, yeah, there's a lot of but, very but interesting American candidates. You're saying you, you have you to do something. Up. You top up, yeah. You basically, your initial bit of earnings, your initial bit of spending each month gets boosted by 100%. Let's say your first $10 becomes 100 uh, when you're shopping at the supermarket. And then as you spend more, that boost turns into a reverse. Uh, it turns into a tax. Uh, and so you end up with a situation in which you, you, in which you help people out at the bottom, uh, and then it turns into a tax over time. And you're not actually taxing people making money. You're taxing people who are spending a lot of money. But it's not a consumption tax or a sales tax that punishes the poor. I thought this was supposed to be a funny show. Okay. So here's a funny question. You're um, elected president, everyone, and the first day there's a red button put in front of you and somebody says to you, oh, we don't like those nasty Chinese or Russians or Italians or... If he's a clown and there's a red button, <laughs> does, the, does, the, does the sting come out at the end of the missile with like a piece of paper saying bang? So is, is the red button there just because people are trying to test what I do with it? It's kind of a, yeah, a personality yeah. test. I, I, might, I might press it. It would be kind of fun. Um, but, so it would be a lot of fun to be you know, the, the leader of the most powerful military in the history of humankind. So that's obviously a little, hopefully, a little further down the road than what we're dealing with now. I actually think Trump wouldn't do anything. He's kind of the inverse of, uh, of Theodore Roosevelt. He, he talks very loudly and carries a tiny stick. Don't tell his wife I said that. Um, and so what you end up with is... Uh, is He's only got small hands. <laughs> small hands, that's right. Yeah, we don't have to worry about the stick. Uh, so what you end up with is uh, Trump may not be uh, the most effective response in that situation. Uh, but that is a, a particularly interesting uh, problem. And what you end up with is, I think, uh, there's a real need for messaging. You have to make it extremely clear that you will react to that sort of thing totally out of proportion. Uh, 
Uh, if somebody t engages in an aggressive nuclear activity like that, it has to be understood that there will be nothing left afterwards. The environment. <laughs> uh, have you got your equi Are you going to become the Greta Thunberg of America? I don't think you guys are being very nice to me. Uh, no, I don't think I'm going to manage to be the Greta Thunberg of America. Wow, the environment. That's a question I try to avoid. Uh, basically, my policy is avoid talking about anything serious because then people will pin you down uh, and you won't be able to make them happy. Yeah, so, the uh, makings of a very good politician. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah, you have, to, you have to avoid saying anything meaningful. How many people are going to vote for you? So far, I have three. <laughs> I, I, I would vote for him, and I think, Mark, maybe you would. I would if I was an American. Exactly. I'm afraid we're British. Shame you're not running in the UK elections. I want to have a job that matters. <gasps> Ouch. <laughs> Thank you very much, Candidate Everyone. And if people want to know more about Candidate Everyone, how can they do so? Visit my campaign headquarters at candidateeveryone.com. I think it's costing a dollar a month. Is that your 14 You can go until after the election on $14. I can go for seven years. $14 a week. It's a, it's a very, very good number. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Drum roll, please. <laughs> they really put me on the spot with that Greta Thunberg bit, and I feel bad making fun of her like that. She is just a kid, and so that wasn't fair. And I feel bad about my invitation being so poor. But the fact is, I've only ever listened to her speak a single sentence. I listened because everybody else has been doing it, and I'm man enough to admit that, at my heart, I'm a sheep. But then I stop listening, one sentence later. I can't stand my kids whinging, so why would I want to hear somebody else's kids do it? Actually, I don't listen to any politicians. I heard Trump deliver a few sentences prior to his nomination. That was enough for me. I heard a few paragraphs from Obama. Back in 2003, when the Iraq War was gearing up, I listened to an entire State of the Union from Bush Jr. That was the last one. I just can't stand the shallow, self-serving, power-hungry talk of politicians who think they're all so much smarter and wiser than they really are. I get enough of that talk in my own head, so why would I want to hear somebody else do it? Speaking of which, I find it really amazing that anybody will listen to this podcast. I guess you guys just aren't as shallow, self-serving, and power-hungry as I am. So you have capacity left over for people like me. Okay, let's cover a few current events. First off, there was this election in Britain. Apparently, it involves something called Brexit. Now, I'm not planning on running for prime minister anytime soon, and while I like to think that I'm too smart to give an opinion about something I don't have to give an opinion about, I do know that I'm not actually that smart. So here goes. Here is my opinion on Brexit. In the marketplace, we have a number of mechanisms to prevent monopolies. Why? because monopolies lead to too much power for individual corporate entities. They stifle service, drive up prices, and kneecap innovation. Well, I like to think about governments in the same way. They too can have monopolies by hooking up into powerful transnational entities, and then they can use those monopolies to stifle competition. This can limit service, drive up the cost of government, and kneecap innovation. Yes, size can yield efficiencies but often it doesn't. In my house growing up, synergy was a four-letter word. We'd actually be punished for using it, because synergy was rarely real, although market power was. The same goes for governments. If they link up, they can actually reduce efficiencies, and instead of competing for customers, citizens, and businesses, they can collude against them. In effect, they prevent businesses and citizens from shopping around, and thus they limit quality government and eventually 
freedom. Places like Singapore or South Korea show that scale isn't actually necessary for success. So, in my opinion, transnational entities should be weak. Otherwise, you're just creating super-governments that create barriers to governmental competition. Brexit may or may not be good for Britain now, but I do believe greater independence for Britain will be good for Britain and Europe and the rest of us in the long term. The one thing that gets me is that countries don't compete for their customers. Instead, they often try to keep them out. We should create a good governmental product and then we should sell it. We should be drawing people in and building something fantastic when we do so. Now, the interview I shared didn't cover much in the way of new ground. But like anybody who thinks they're smarter and wiser than they actually are, I'm happy to share my opinion in lots of areas I don't know much about. Brexit is one example, but not the only one. So this week, I want to read you a story about prison reform. I actually chose the story because one of our listeners, we'll call him Nahum, asked me to. He thought it was, and I'm quoting, a great concept. Of course, the idea in this story is completely unworkable, but perhaps it'll make you think. Pete and the Felon A kid. What the heck was a kid doing in here? I just stared at the boy in front of me, absolutely stunned by what I was seeing. Who in the heck would bring a kid to this place, much less expose him to me? I sat there, confused, while the kid looked around the room. Then he turned to me and said, Hi, in a cheerful little voice. I just stared back and managed to squeeze out one quiet, Hi, in response. I was afraid that if I said too much, I'd somehow damage him. Who the heck would let their kid into this place? Ten minutes earlier, I'd had no idea what was coming. The guards had got me from my cell. They'd shackled me for the first time in a long time, and then they'd walk me through the halls of the prison. At each barred entrance, there was a buzz and a click, and doors were unlocked and opened. The guards weren't worried. The guards were rarely worried. The shackles they'd put on me weren't normal shackles. They were electrified. And other guards were watching by closed-circuit video. Those guards can bring me down at the touch of a button. And just to stop me from grabbing anybody nearby, the shackles come with plastic mittens. After about a five-minute walk, we came to a door, a proper steel door. There was the normal buzz and click, and then the guard in front of me gestured me into the room. It was an interview room, the kind lawyers use. There was a plastic desk and two plastic chairs facing each other across the desk. But, aside from the guards, there was nobody else in the room. There was also one other door, closed, facing the one I entered through. One of the guards connected my shackles to the desk, and then they left, leaving me alone. And I sat there, quietly, patiently. You learn to be patient in prison. And then after a few minutes, the door opposite me buzzed. I lifted my head, wondering who was going to come through the door. And then the kid walked in. He was a boy, no more than eight years old, and he was walking into my interview room. Right away, I was confused. But a moment later, I was scared. I was a violent felon. I knew sitting there in that interview room that this kid shouldn't be anywhere near me. But he didn't seem to care. My name is Pete, said the kid. He had blue eyes and dirty blonde hair. Um, I managed. I'm Jimmy. 
I struggled for my next thought, and then, as silly as it was, it came rushing out. Does your mother know you're here? Of course she does, he said with a grin. I just stared. What kind of mother would send her son into a prison to meet one-on-one -on -one with a felon like me? Why are you here? I asked Shanley. Pete just grinned. I'm here to be your little brother. My little brother? I asked. Yeah, said Pete. It's the coolest new after-school activity. A whole bunch of us come here to the prison to be little brothers. I'd heard of big brothers, but never little brothers. What is a little brother? I asked. I don't know, said Pete, honestly. I guess we're supposed to hang out. In prison, I asked. And then Pete just shrugged. After a moment, he asked, What'd you do? I don't want to talk about that, I said quickly. Okay, said Pete amiably. Where are you from? That I could talk about. And so we got to talking. I told him about my town. It had been nice once. It had had a plant. It had grown all the stuff that a successful town should have. It had a town hall and a rotary club, nice houses and solid middle-class families. Sure, it had issues then, but they were kept behind closed doors. Everything in public reflected the happy routine of life at the plant. The kid was fascinated by the plant. For me, it was something my parents talked about before my dad left. They'd worked there. For me, the plant represented a past they had and a future I wouldn't have. The kid grew up in a totally different town, but they also had the plant, and their plant also shut down. But for the kid, it was something legendary. His parents hadn't worked there. His grandparents had. It was about as real to him as the story of King Arthur. And so I told him what happened when the plant closed. I told him that was when things got bad. Instead of just curling up and dying like some gold rush town without any more gold, people tried to hold on. They had their car dealerships and cafes and rotary clubs. They had valuable houses they couldn't sell. They had mortgages. They didn't want to leave. They couldn't, really. So they just hung on. The kid listened to every word, nodding his agreement. Occasionally, I explained, the government would invest in this program or that, or somebody would buy some big old building and try to do something useful with it. But all that did was slow things down. All that did was make things worse. The town died when the plant closed. We were just the fungus and rot left over. And we were a mess. He got the rot reference. He knew what it was like. But then he went away. He got an hour with me. One hour every week. When he came back the next week, I knew what was happening. I was excited to see him. Excited and scared. I still didn't know who thought this whole thing was a good idea. That second week, we started just as we had before. Hi. Hi. Does your mother know you're here? Of course she does. What'd you do? I don't want to talk about that. This became the beginning of every conversation, kind of a private handshake between close friends, and he'd always ask what I did, and I'd always refuse to tell him. That second week we kept talking, just like we had before. It was the kid who brought up the drugs. He said the big men in town weren't the car dealers or plant managers. They were the drug dealers at the top of the local pyramid. He was eight years old, and he already knew this. And he was right. In the old days, the car dealer and factory manager were the big men in town, and the plant workers were the stable middle, and there was nobody on the bottom. But by now, in Pete's days, the drug boss was the big man. The school teachers, police, and town officials were the stable middle, and everybody else was on the bottom. And everybody on the bottom was growing, processing, packaging, dealing, or using the drugs. And that included the geriatrics. 
when a whole town on welfare is spending its money on drugs, things are real bad. There's nothing left over for the rest of life. And Pete was worried about ending up on that bottom. Of course, there were ways out of the bottom. You could grow up and leave, you could work for the government, or you could get into the local drug business, what everyone began to call, as a kind of joke, the plant. I asked him what he planned to do, and he told me straight up like he was talking about the weather. I'm going to work at the plant. I just stared at him then, and then I realized why he was here. He was here so I could convince him that this was a bad idea. Of course, I had no idea how to do that. The third week started like the other two, but we started talking about my past. I told Pete that when I'd been in school, I was a wiry and tough kid just like him. I was only smart enough to know I wasn't smart enough to leave town or get a government job. That left me with brawn and a short temper. It wasn't brains that taught me that brawn and a short temper were useful. It was experience. People began to give me space. They respected me. They feared me. And I liked it. So what do you do? he asked. He was almost excited, and I knew I didn't want to tell him. So I skipped ahead and told him about being sentenced by the judge. I told him the judge had sentenced me to this place, the new state reform prison. I told him I had no idea how long I'd be here. The sentence had been extended until my release at the prison's discretion. Pete asked me what that meant, and I said I didn't really know. I mean, I knew it meant there was no real time limit, but I didn't know how long I'd be here. I could be here for the rest of my life. That scared Pete. I saw it did. But I knew fear wasn't going to be enough to stop him. And then our hour was up, and Pete left for the third time. When he came back the next week, we started with the same banter. And then he asked me what prison was like, and I told him. I told him I came into prison figuring I was built for it. I figured I could hold my own. But this prison wasn't what I had been expecting. I told him about my first days here. I told him about how they shaved my hair and shackled me. And then I told him about how the prison denied me water when I'd first arrived. Pete was shocked by that. It was unbelievable to him. It had been to me, too. They told me that if I wanted water, I had to agree to follow all the prison regulations, no matter what they ended up being. I held out for over a full day, but then I gave in. I needed water, and so I agreed. But the prison didn't stop there. They still refused to give me food. To get food, I had to promise to use my time in prison well, whatever that meant. Eventually, I agreed, desperate for something to eat, and then they fed me. Prison was hell, but I told Pete. I thought that when I got a chance to fight, I'd finally show that I belonged. Pete smiled at that. He was also good at fighting. So I told him what happened. Another prisoner got up in my face, and I decided to get up in his. But there was no fight, I told him. Instead, we both ended up squirming piles of pain on the floor. Our shackles were electrified, and some faraway guard dropped us like sacks of potatoes. Pete was blown away. I showed him my shackles then. I showed him the plastic mittens. I told him they could deliver a warning buzz, a sharp thwack of pain, or a knockout blow. And in those early days in the prison, life had been crackdown after crackdown. Nothing was tolerated. Everything was watched. The shackles themselves had microphones. If we talked about the wrong things, zap. Pete seemed somber, so I kept going. I explained our sentences were open-ended. And so at first we fought, figuring we were heroes resisting tyranny of the system. But they just cracked down harder, and without some cooperation, there was no end point. 
Every one of us was convicted for a violent crime short of murder. We were brawlers, but whoever ran the prison was bigger and better at brawling than we had ever been. And so as things continued, they shoved rule after rule down our throats, and we learned to take it. We worked when the prison told us to work, and when we got time off, we discovered that things went better if we used that time well. We could call family or friends, we could talk to others to try to help them out, we could pray. But if we tried to deal drugs or barter or resist the prison or anything like that, life got hard, fast. We learned to get along. Eventually we stopped fighting, even in our own minds. The prison had broken us. Pete had gotten downright scared by the end of that conversation. He looked like he'd had a life plan, but everything had just been shattered. I knew how he felt. I'd felt it too, in those early days in the prison. Pete didn't come back for a few weeks then. I'd worried I'd overdone it, but then three weeks later he finally showed up again. There'd been some kind of school break, he said. His hi was a little less chipper, though. He wasn't really looking forward to our talk. I knew I had to tell him something nicer. Thankfully, there was something nicer to tell. Only a few months after arriving at the prison, I transferred out of that first cell block. I learned the place I'd been held was called the intake block. It was where they broke you. But once you were broken, they moved you to the residence block, and in the residence block, things were different. The shackles came off, and while the same rules were there, they stopped cramming them down our throats. Instead, the prison kept pushing the idea that we should be proud we followed them. They kept pushing the idea that we should be proud to be in this prison. While other prisons just punished and hardened their criminals, we were learning an important life lesson. We were learning industry and charity. Pete asked me about industry and charity, and I found myself explaining it proudly. Some old English guy who'd helped free a bunch of slaves had also established a bunch of schools for kids in small towns in England, towns like ours. The schools were there to teach industry and charity. Industry was working and creating and being productive, and charity was dedicating yourself to your community and to those less fortunate. Industry gave fuel to charity, and charity gave purpose to industry. It was a yin-yang thing, but we did more than think about it. We practiced it. We did our work in the prison, we earned scrip, and then we spent it in charity, and we discovered that it was actually rewarding. When Pete asked if he could try out industry and charity, I finally realized what I could do to teach him. I could teach him industry and charity. Pete and I kept talking for years. He told me about the work he was doing, although he was legally too young to work. He told me about the friends and family he was helping. He told me about the troubles he had and the troubles his mother had. And he told me about teaching her what I was teaching him. It only dawned on me slowly that by teaching him, I was teaching myself. After almost five years of conversation, things changed again. I was transferred for the second time, but my third and final cell block wasn't like the others. The residents called it the exit block, and it didn't have cells, not like a normal prison anyway. This place was a bit more like a cheap hotel. We had our own rooms with solid doors and all. The weirdest thing about it was that we could leave. Not only could we leave, we had to leave. Before, the cafeteria just fed us. Here, they wanted payment. We needed to work for our food. Lucky for us, the prison had organized jobs for us on the outside. Not chain gang jobs, just jobs. Mine was packing boxes at a distribution center. I went to work every day, I earned money from an actual job, and then I had to go back to prison every night, break the rules, and I could be back to the residence or even intake. I suspected, being as I was a felon and all, that the prison was paying my salary, 
but I didn't care. For the first time in my life, I had industry down. Charity wasn't far behind. I, personally, didn't need much. I was still living in the prison, and so I found myself giving some of my money away. I helped other prisoners who had family in trouble. I helped Pete buy school supplies. I helped his mother buy groceries. I even gave donations to a local church. I had a family now, not only Pete, but Pete's mom, a single mother, and my friends in prison. And my friends in prison weren't just close friends, the kind who would have your back. They were good friends, the kind who would make sure your back was worth having. And then, a little more than six years after I'd been sentenced to an indefinite term, I was released from prison. It wasn't a big shift. I kept my job, and I kept my friends, and I kept my new family. All that changed was that the curfew was lifted. I could sleep in the prison if I wanted to, but I was also free to get my own place on the outside. I did get myself my own place, a crappy little apartment. I lived in a crappy apartment before prison, but that had been a dead end. This place, not noticeably any nicer, represented a fresh start. I loved it. It was close to Pete's place. I visited him all the time. I even came back to New State quite a bit. But bit by bit, my good friends left the prison, and I spent less and less time there. We settled in the town or other nearby towns. The locals knew us. The county and state were allowed to hire us. I discovered that quite a few of the guards of the prison were former inmates themselves. They moved on and up. They formed the steady middle of this town, whose biggest business was incarceration and reform. When the warden mentioned a prison reunion to me over a cup of coffee at the local coffee shop, I didn't laugh. The idea actually made sense. It was a way to remind ourselves of all we had overcome, and of how much potential we still had. It was a way to overcome real-world adversity. The next day Pete asked me, as he always did when we met, what I'd done. He was thirteen now, a little man, and for the first time I told him what had happened. I dropped out of high school, I said. I'd been a tough kid. I was respected and feared, but it didn't get me into the plant. I was too unstable, even for them. Instead, just like everybody else, they just kept their distance. I was a loser in almost every sense, but I was respected and feared. Pete just listened. There was none of the appreciation for my old self that he once would have expressed. Then one day, some guys came rolling into town. I still don't know who they were or why they were there. It was a Friday night, and they were drinking at the local tavern. And then they were looking around the bar, and they started making fun of the locals. And I became a particular object of their ridicule. They made fun of my hair, of how I looked at them, and how I seemed so surprised that they'd made fun of me. And I knew, just knew, that I had to respond. All I had was my name. I had to preserve it. When the main guy whipped out his cell phone to take a picture of me, I told him to put it away. When he didn't, I proceeded to beat him with his own phone in public in a bar. My knuckles had been coated with his blood. I hit him so hard, my face and hair had been splattered as well. I'd beat him. I'd left him for dead, and then I'd gone home to my one-room apartment. I hadn't even washed myself off by the time the police had come. My mugshot showed the evidence of my crime, but I thought I'd kept the only thing that mattered. I thought I'd kept the respect of others. It was then that Pete interrupted. He said simply, You were wrong. How? I asked, challenging him. I thought maybe he'd mentioned the stupidity of almost killing a man and then going to prison over a cell phone photo. But that thirteen-year-old, who had been talking to a violent felon for five years, just said, You were wrong because you thought the respect of others was the most important thing. 
you didn't know it was more important to have a reason to respect yourself. I looked at Pete then, the wise, small-town, 13-year-old boy, and I realized he was right. I looked at that wise, 13-year-old boy, and I realized that he was the reason I had to respect myself. And then I finally understood why he'd been sent to me. He hadn't been sent so I could rescue him. He'd been sent so I could rescue myself. I smiled then, and he smiled back, and I knew I'd truly been saved by my little brother. And I knew for the first time in my life that I was truly free. I wrote this story after a conversation with a woman on a train. She works in criminal justice, helping to handle young adult offenders. She told me about the resignation she felt when dealing with these young men. We talked about the generation to come and the things that could forestall their own criminal futures. The discussion got me thinking about prison and its failures. I think few fields have been explored more than the art and science of reforming prisoners. But it isn't a reach to suggest that we've come up short in this effort. Naturally, given my own ego, I figured I could have something to offer. Now this story and the process it describes was actually based on another story, the reformation of the Jewish people after they leave Egypt. They enter the desert as slaves and they emerge as an independent people. This as can be seen by the continued struggles of Haiti and African Americans in the United States is one of the hardest transformations that can be imagined. Of course, the story I've shared here isn't legal or practical or constitutional. I can't even speak to whether it would be effective. It is meant simply to help us think and to help us imagine what might be possible for those we have written off as beyond hope and help. If you want to hear more about how I got this story from the biblical process, you can literally buy the book. My alter ego could use the love. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, and even if you didn't, please share and follow and subscribe and do whatever else you can to make Candidate Everyone a success. Ask not what you can do for yourselves, but what you can do for me. Thank you and have a great week.